Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are members of the Allen NLP team at the Allen Institute for AI. For this episode, we'll be talking about leveraging human language processing signals for NLP. And to discuss this topic, we have joining us Lisa Beinborn, who's an assistant professor at VU Amsterdam. Our co-hosts are Alexis Ross, myself, and Pradeep Desigi, who uh, we are both researchers on the Allen NLP team at the Allen Institute for AI. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, thank you so much for uh, inviting me to this podcast. I'm thrilled. Great. So I was thinking that to get started, a good topic would be your recent survey paper, recent survey workshop paper towards best practices for leveraging human language processing signals for NLP. So to get started, can you talk about what are the goals for linking human language processing signals and modeling or model NLP signals? That's a very good question, and it was actually the most difficult part of that paper to find a common vision there. So I did this paper together with uh, Nora Holmstein from the University of Copenhagen and with Maria Bert, who's also in Copenhagen. And we came from slightly different perspectives. And I'm also like right now we are teaching a course on the cognitive plausibility of language models at a European summer school. And if I ask there what makes a, a model cognitively plausible, you can get all kinds of different answers. Right. So saying you want to make models more cognitively plausible is actually completely underspecified because like neuroscience researchers will think about whether you're using spiking neurons or not. And then psycholinguists will think about whether you investigate the processing patterns, like, for example, in garden path sentences or so on. And computer scientists will wonder what kind of performance this system has, is it similar to human performance or not? So that you first have to decide what does it mean when we want to make a model more cognitively plausible or understand the cognitive plausibility of a model. And most of Nora's experiments were targeted at improving the performance of the model, making it more human-like in a way. These are actually not necessarily the same, right? Because you might have a model that doesn't improve the quantitative performance, but still would be understood as being more human-like in the kind of errors it makes, right? Because it does get like the easy things right and the difficult things wrong. And then it would be like considered to be more natural, but in the end, it wouldn't change your evaluation metrics, which could be a blue score or accuracy or whatever, right? Because they're a model that picks up like a latent factor in the data set. Like, I don't know, longer set sentences have a specific property, might do better quantitatively, but it's not so good at generalizing them, right? So that's one perspective, right? Um, does the model output more human-like answers so that could be one perspective, but it's not so easy to evaluate, I have to say. And another thing, another perspective that I like is also understanding what kind of decisions uh, a model makes. And that's, well, that's really hard, I have to say, but it's related to the field of interpretability, right? Where you want to better understand what kind of intermediate representations do we have? Do these maybe align with the kind of representations that 
we can deduct from human brain data. Yeah. And do we, like, can we find some metrics to understand which model better aligns with the human data? And what can we draw from that? Great. Yeah. So that's kind of a nice segue into my next question, which is in the survey paper, you mentioned different kinds of human brain data and different signals for this data. One of them, or one category of this, these signals is signals derived from the brain. Could you talk a little bit more about those and what kinds of information they encode and how they're gathered? Yes. So when we say we're using cognitive signals, that can be a lot of things, right? Like even if we just use human annotated labels, that can also give you insights into human cognition, right? But at the core, what people associate with cognitive signals are brain signals. And the two main paradigms for this, one is EEG, where you measure the electric currents on the surface of the skull by wearing like one of these fancy hats with electrodes, where you measure like the electrical activity. Uh, the advantage of this signal is that it's really fine-grained on the temporal level, but you it's hard to understand what is actually going on. So you can understand there's something changing, but not so well what is changing and where it's changing. So it gives you very, like, signals that you can very well align with different words or even parts of a word, uh, different words or even parts of a word, but it's still quite coarse-grained what is happening there. And the fMRI signal gives you much better spatial resolution. That means you can tell very well where in the brain something's happening, but it comes with a certain delay. And that's due to the mechanism behind this fMRI signal. So it is using big magnets and it's measuring the oxygen level in the brain. And the idea is that the brain needs oxygen to work better. So if the brain works harder in certain areas, it's, it needs more oxygen. So we measure the oxygen level that's transported by the blood to certain brain areas by the magnetic response. And the problem is that this comes with a delay, as I said. So first you use the, use the oxygen, then new oxygen comes, right? And this response, like this delay differs in how long it takes by subject. It might be two to maybe even six seconds, and it might also not be always the same. So you cannot measure it once for a subject, but it might differ on the day of the recording and so on. And there are many, well, not many, but there's several complex models on how to align your recording to this delay and measure it for the subject. But still, you have to account for the fact that it's not going to be precise, right? So then if you record a, um, a subject reading a full sentence, it will be really hard for you to pinpoint what's going on in the brain one specific word temporally. But that, like, fMRI gives you these nice visualizations where you see that different, different parts of the brain are illuminated and indicating that there's more activity going on there than in other areas. I see. So can you talk about how these signals are typically incorporated into networks? Maybe that's still a, 
a new area of research, but hearing the kind of description of these two signals, it sounds like the analog in NLP models would be maybe something like, you know, EEG corresponds to, tells you what words in a sequence are important because there's this temporal aspect and fMRI corresponds to maybe which parts of the network should be lighting up. Although, of course, neural networks are different than human networks. So I was just curious about how these signals are typically incorporated, if at all. Yeah, when you're saying typically incorporated, I guess you're like, you want to hear some best practices, right? But I think we're not yet there because they have just not been performed enough experiments to really answer that. I think we're still at the point where we're trying to figure this out, right? So what I said before, that fMRI is not ideal for getting like a good temporal alignment, right? That's a bit common sense. But then there's a lot of like recent papers questioning that and saying, well, we do, we can, we found a way, we found models that can do that. The thing is that they usually work only with one fMRI data set because one fMRI data sets are expensive to record. And two, they're like not so often publicly available. This is slowly changing, but it's not yet sufficient to really like do these large scale comparisons that we would like to do in NLP, where we say we use one technique and apply it to every data set and then say, well, if we do that, uh, we get this kind of performance. If we do that, we do get this kind of performance. And that's why this is the best practice from now on. And everyone who will start with this should take this as given, put, get, take this as given. We are not yet there. And that's also what I find very difficult about this discipline is that there's so many experimental choices that you have to make. and Every choice might affect your result, but you cannot be sure if that was a good choice. (laughs) So you still have to compare a lot. But if you do that, if you play around a lot, then there's a huge chance of overfitting, right? That you make your experimental choices based on what gives you better results. And you actually see that quite a bit in the psychological studies that they report results on selected voxels in the test set, right? But then we did a study on that, on comparing different voxel selection techniques. So a voxel is one brain cube, basically. So fMRI splits the brain into small spatial cubes and measures the activation in each of these cubes. And depending on the resolution of the scanner, you have set, like, 60 to maybe 300,000 different voxels, right? It depends what kind of scanner you use and what kind of resolution. And then you want to somehow reduce this signal because you usually do not have like a long enough sample to account for these high number of dimensions, right? So you want to reduce the number of voxels you want to look at. And for several brain functions, there's already a very good idea which part of the brain is responsible for that. So if uh, in computer vision or, in, or let's say in the vision process, you can isolate certain brain areas that are responsible for really mapping the sensory signal from of the eye into vision perception. And for languages, we're not yet there. So <clears throat> we couldn't really say, well, there's some ideas of where language processing is happening in the brain. You might have heard about Broca's area or Wernicke's area, area or that the left frontal lobe is more important. 
But there's also studies, like for example, by Alexander Hutt saying, well, it's a super distributed signal. Like the whole brain is active when we're processing language, which makes sense, right? Because we always think and thinking is some yeah. kind of language processing too. And then like if we move, if we see something, it always involves thinking about it, like a certain consciousness. So it, I don't think it's unlikely that the whole brain is active when processing language, but that makes it really difficult to look only at specific brain regions. and. That's why I think this is already an important experimental choice, right? Which part of the brain are we looking at? And ideally, you, I think, you would take a data-driven perspective on that, right? So, like autoencoding, like taking the whole voxel input and then using an autoencoder or something like that to learn a more compressed version of that, like which are the voxels that are responsible for language processing, but we don't have enough data for that yet. I know there are some attempts at doing that, but for language, it's, it's really not yet enough. And it comes from so many different studies that it's not really comparable. So especially with brain signals, you need to do a lot of pre-processing because human brains are all different, come in different shapes and sizes. Then you need to do a lot of statistical pre-processing to align this, to remove some noise, to do some spatial smoothing and so on. So you already have a lot of pre-processing. And if people do different types of pre-processing and only give you the pre-processed data, then this makes it hard to compare afterwards. What of your experimental choices is actually like affecting the result and what is maybe more due to the different pre-processing. So let's say we had this kind of standardized compressed version of a region that was shown to be important in humans. What would the analysis be then with, what, what are the kinds of analyses that that would lend us the opportunity to conduct with NLP models? Or is that still an open question too? Well, one very important aspect underlying many of our language models in NLP is that we organize words based on semantic similarity. So similar words should receive similar, like semantically similar words should receive semantically similar representations. You can see that in the, like, it's, it's basically underlying most of the language modeling objectives, right? And the other assumption is that this is related with, the, like, semantic similarity is related to context effects. Right, that words that occur in similar contexts are semantically similar. And I think it's a good assumption, and I think it's also rooted in some psycholinguistic literature, but we don't know yet if the brain organizes words and concepts like that. Right? It might also organize words by, I don't know, the smell associated to them, or the way they sound, right? or the feeling you have. <laughs> when you're thinking about this word. So on the on the lexical level, or on the semantic level, I would find this super exciting, right? To understand better how humans organize concepts in their brain and whether this corresponds to like this statistical frequency-based approach that we are taking. Yeah. Like the first experience that I've seen like, do seem to confirm this. But for example, we in, in cognitive science, there's often a distinction between abstract concepts and, and concrete concepts. And we try to analyze brain data with respect to this distinction. 
And we tried several different methods and we couldn't really confirm this, that, that you could group concepts based on how concrete or how abstract they are. That's probably due to a lot of interfering factors because I don't know, like for example, tree can be both a concrete and an abstract concept, right? And so I think that this abstract concrete distinction is too simplistic, but maybe there is a latent factor of abstractness that I'm just not seeing in the data yet, right? So you notice I, I'm being very careful here um, because I've been fascinated by this research topic, but I've also learned that it's really difficult to come to conclu conclusions. And yeah, I feel that we will still have to learn a lot. And I think that some of our common assumptions will be contradicted when this, when we do more experiments of that kind with more publicly available data, more replication studies, and also more people working on that. So please join us and, and work on this topic. Yeah, it sounds like there are so many interesting questions that can be answered should that haven't yet been answered, I guess, with more data and such. But yeah, this is all super interesting. I was also hoping to talk about eye tracking, the eye tracking signal that we can get from humans as well, because you also have another work building on that signal specifically. So can you tell us about what it is and what it represents in human language processing? Yes, eye tracking data in my opinion, it's a bit more intuitive to understand what it's measuring because it uses cameras and infrared light usually to track the movement of the pupil while doing something, right, of the subject. Like the subject is doing some kind of activity, for example, reading, and while the subject is doing that, the movements of the pupil are being tracked. And it's important to know that these movements are not smooth but like uh, the eye fixates on something and then makes a little jump called a saccade to something else, and then it fixates again. So we experience this as a smooth movement, but it is, right? it's, a, it's a trick of the brain that like smooths over it. And the nice thing about eye tracking is that it's much less invasive than, for example, fMRI, because there you have to be in a huge scanner and you have all this background noise and it's really awkward and it's very apparent to the subject that it's in a lab, right? And that it might adapt its behavior to what the subject expects to, like what the researchers are looking for or that what, what should be appropriate lab behavior. <laughs> and the, the eye tracking devices, you might even forget about them, right? It can be some glasses that you put on. Sometimes it can be done by a little webcam. So it's, it's, also less expensive, and the signal is also less noisy. Um, I mean, of course, you might have the subject looking out of the window while doing something or so, right? But then that would be just recorded as outside the target. But in general, I think, the, well, you, you have much less dimensions in this data because instead of like a 3D brain, you only have a 2D screen where something's happening in, in case of recording reading activity, and you only have to map the eye movement on this 2D screen. And that is much easier to analyze, I think. Still, you have lots of intersubject differences, right? So reading speed varies, 
then of course language proficiency, cognitive abilities, and so on. But it's a bit easier to smooth over that in eye tracking. So averaging um, for some eye tracking features, averaging works quite well. So you don't have to train a separate model for each participant, but you can actually average over the signal. And there is a huge number of eye tracking studies available. It's also not very novel, right? It's um, I think already more than 50 years of it. Well, I'm not sure. Well, I'm not going to say any number here, but <laughs> I know that uh, Reina published something in the 70s, like a huge survey of eye tracking research. So it must be around for some time. And the eye tracking studies we are interested in are those that really capture quite naturalistic language processing behavior. Because I said earlier that it's sometimes really hard to isolate specific factors in the in the signal. And because of that, what psycholinguists often do is isolate the factor in the stimulus. So that you read, for example, two different sentences that are completely parallel and only differ in one aspect, like whether you're using an animate or an inanimate noun. And that then the signal doesn't have to be so precise because you can isolate the difference by by comparison. And uh, but that's also quite artificial. Like psycholinguists then have a tendency to create really long, complex sentences that you never see in a story or in a news text. Right? And as uh, natural language processing researchers, we are more interested in this like frequent language behavior, not the edge cases, but like the normal cases. And that's why we like looking at these studies where the where the signal is more natural, like uh, reading a story, for example. I see. Yeah. So you use these signals in this kind of more natural setup or natural setting in your recent ACL short paper, Relative Importance in Sentence Processing. Could you describe the kind of experimental questions you were investigating in that paper? And yeah, well, we could talk about the experiments afterward. Yeah, I can. So what we can see in eye tracking data is that humans fixate certain words for a longer time than other words. For example, they tend to jump over highly frequent words, like usually function words, like articles, conjunctions, and also words that are completely easy to predict based on the context. And we call, we like coined this term of relative importance saying, well, some words are more important than others. That's a bit of a shallow term because importance can mean many different things. A word might be infrequent to be important. It might be surprising in a certain context. It might be like expressing an extreme emotion or something like that. We like didn't go into the pains of defining this more clearly. And we said, well, if we're just distinguishing on how important it is in this context. And we measured this in the eye tracking data based on the relative fixation duration. So when you read a sentence, you fixate words, word, well, some words you don't fixate at all, but some others you fixate multiple times. So you read them once, you go on, and then you go back to that words and then have to reparse it or say, well, what was that again in this context? And so we averaged over that and accumulated the all fixations. And why did we do that? 
because we wanted to see what is the language modeling model doing, right? So we know that the language model is quite good at this task of a mass language modeling, so it can predict a word based on the context, and we assume that this must be highly related to this importance, right? So it can understand like what kind of role the word plays in this context. And we wanted to see whether there are similarities between the human data and the language modeling data, and it's not that easy. <laughs> so when you think about eye-tracking data, the first that comes to mind is that it's a proxy for attention, right? If you fixate a, lo a word longer, then you attend to it more, you know, because attention is like some kind of conscious process, and it's you would assume that if you're looking at a word longer, you're thinking more consciously about it than when you're just like hopping over it. And so we did that. We tried to align the relative fixation duration in the eye tracking data with the attention, and it didn't work. So we tried all kinds of different combinations, like which layer are we using? Are we averaging over the different attention heads? Are we summing above, uh, over them? And so I put these experiments away for a few months and it's like, yeah, it's not working. I, I don't get a handle on how to model the attention here. I haven't tried enough. I, I need to read more about attention in neural networks, how this is actually working. And then at that time, I was in Jelle Zöldemar's lab and he's very interested in interpretability research. So how are the representations in neural networks build up? And in this lab, we read a lot about interpretability metrics, one of them being gradient-based saliency. And so I tried gradient-based saliency and explain a bit what that means. I just want to give you already the gist that it suddenly worked without trying anything, right? So with the attention, I tried so many different things and I didn't really get a, got any conclusive results. I was really like massaging the data into making some sense of it. <laughs> it just didn't work. And then I thought, well, I'm just going to try it gradient-based saliency ones, and suddenly there was these really nice patterns where you could really compare, okay, that's what the humans do, that's what the model is doing. Sometimes they align, sometimes they don't align, and then you can conclude from that. And I found this super interesting. They had almost given up on this project already, and then I changed the interpretability metric, and, and suddenly it like fell into place. And like fortunately, this also aligns with the research. Right? You, you might have heard about these papers, attention is all you need, or attention is not information, and attention is not, not information. So it fits with this discussion that attention is not necessarily what we think it is based on the term, yeah, on the metaphor. And so I first I have to say what gradient-based saliency does. So it measure it comes from the end, right? So in in a neural network, you have to specify the target objectives, so that that's for with for which you try to reduce the loss and gradient based end well and so you have to predict a label in the end, right? And usually gradient based saliency is explained for for tasks that have only a very few classes, like for example sentiment, where you have positive, negative, and neutral sentiment, and then you can see which word in the input contributes to which sentiment. So you can say, I don't know, uh, it was a beautiful evening, then you expect beautiful 
to contribute strongly to the positive class and not so much to the other two classes. And you measure this by like taking the norm of the gradient back for each input word. And in the language model, the target class is basically one token in the vocabulary, the one that you that it was that you masked in the input. Right? That is your target class. So we iteratively masked each token in the input and then checked how much each of the other token contributes to predict to the prediction of this mask token. And then we assumed that, well, a token that contributes to the predict prediction of many other tokens, that is more important than the other ones. So then we added up this saliency. And this is this is how we linked it to the human data. Was that mostly clear? Yeah, I think it was. I mean you're you're trying to measure the correlation between the gradient-based saliency in a mass language modeling task and uh, importance that humans give to each of these words, right? One question I had about this is whether you think the results would be any different if you looked at, a, say, a left-to-right language modeling task instead of a mass language modeling task. Do you have any intuition, sir? Uh, first of all, that yeah, that was a great uh, summary, Pradeep. <laughs> Next time I let you explain the experimental <laughs> setup. Um, yeah, it, it's a it's a really good question. It's also something that the reviewers asked us. And so we measured this for the BERT model and some other transformer-based variants. And they said, well, why, what is with the left-to-right model? And that makes complete sense because cyclinguists much rather prefer left-to-right models because they say it better approximates human incremental processing, where if it's like English or some other Latin languages where we read left to right, then the model should also have this sense of direction. And then we thought, well, we're just going to try it, right? Ready-based saliency is also available for um, left to right models like GPT-2, for example. The problem is that if we go from left to right, then when we mask a token, we can only look at the previous token, right? And then if we like average over, like accumulate over everything, then we automatically have a higher importance of the first tokens in a sentence because they're just like looked at more often. Right? Even if they like contribute very little to each to the contribution of each token, they're involved so many times that it ends up high. And that's well a weakness of the setup in this case. So I would just say our setup doesn't generalize to this case. I think you can still do it. But you have to find a way to account a bit for this this ordering effect. I'm still thinking about it, I have to say, because I want to do it. And I mean, it also makes sense that's the, that the first words are more important, right? Because that's also the case with humans, that they can only go back to these words. So like the effect is the same. But when we like when we just use the same setup. It's just like the result was just very, very skewed that you just had like the first words are most important, independent on, on what's coming after, basically. And if, well, if someone knows a good way to mathematically smooth over that, make this more meaningful, let me know. Right. I'm, I'm very curious. Do you actually see the same trend in the human importance? So the importance that humans give as well to each of these words that the earlier words are more important. I mean, no, because the sentence often 
starts with, so English sentences often start with the subject, and then you have, for example, determina, uh, very common adjective, known, noun, and then humans would probably often start reading directly the noun and focusing only on the noun and then having like a little peek on the beginning if it's actually what they thought it was and then go on, right? So they wouldn't necessarily start with the, with the article because they already anticipate that it's coming anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, you can, it's easier to predict the end of a sentence than the beginning, I'd say. But yes, there is a certain ordering effect, but it's not as big as the one that we observe when applying our measure just like that. Okay, so so just to be clear, when we're looking at the importance that humans give to words, uh, it's basically at a sentence level, right? Uh, or maybe at a larger level than what language models do. Because for a language model, whether it's mass language modeling or left to right language modeling, you're trying to find the importance of specific words given that you're trying to predict word in a position, right? And that's not what humans are doing. But there is this difference between reading text in general versus trying to predict what a word in a specific position should be given the other words, right? Yeah, you point to a very important aspect here, and that is that we looked at isolated sentences, and the humans were not, especially particularly in one data set, they were not reading like that. So they were reading a whole chapter of a book by Agatha Christie. Uh, so we observed, for example, that there was the entity Sherlock Holmes, right? That was really important for the model, very novel. It's a named entity, so it plays an important role. But for the humans, it was not very important because the whole chapter was about Sherlock Holmes, right? So they had seen this name several times. And then, yeah, you just need to see like, uh, well, it's capitalized and served with SH. So I, I know what it is, right? So you don't have to focus on this a long time anymore. And I think that's a very important aspect that's still missing in our NLP models, right? That like, the, this ability to reason over sentence boundaries and to keep track of entities, how they're developing, um, like getting this sense of coherence over like a sequence of sentences. Um, well, the, the examples that you see by GPT-3 seem to indicate that it has a certain sense of that, but I couldn't try it out yet. So I don't know. Yeah, thanks. So let's talk a little bit more about your experimental setups. What were the actual language models that you worked with? I think you had three different ones. Yeah, the paper you're referring to is a short paper. So for this one, we had a quite minimalistic experimental setup where we worked with BERT and then double-checked whether the observations we have for the two eye-tracking corpora that we looked at, also for the smaller versions of BERT, like Albert and Stillbert, because that's an important criticism of word that it uses like a much like a cognitively implausible amount of training data and parameters. Right. So we wanted to double check if our observations also hold for the smaller models. The quantitative results were a bit lower, but the patterns remained the same, which is what you would expect, basically. And we didn't try yet left to right models, right? And one important aspect that we are also currently working on is extending this to other languages. So not only English, but also other languages. And then what we would really like to see also is whether there's a difference between monolingual language models and 
multilingual language models. So we had an earlier paper where we showed that multilingual models can predict eye tracking features tiny bit better than the monolingual models. But I'd say our results are not robust enough to really conclude that. It indicates that they might be a little better for that, but there we want to really dig deeper and, and see whether this is actually the case. So when you look at eye tracking data from different, from stimuli in different languages, you see that there are some universal patterns, frequency effect, length effects, and so on. So these patterns you see across different languages. And the idea is that maybe multilingual or cross-lingual language models are better at picking up these universal tendencies, right? That are like apparent in all eye tracking data sets independent of the of the language of the subjects. But that's something we still have to um look into more before I can say anything about it. Yeah, maybe you invite me again and then <laughs> I'll tell you more. These frequency and length effects, those are things that we saw, that you saw in the monolingual models too, right? Just less intensely than maybe for the cross-lingual models or multilingual models? We saw it in both, but it's also quite simplistic effect, right? Because at least for many languages, length and frequency are highly correlated. So you cannot really separate them from each other. And and for eye checking, it makes complete sense that longer words are fixated longer because it just takes you longer to read all the characters. Mm-hmm. And that language models are very sensitive to frequency effects is also not a secret, right? So, so that was, I think it was interesting to see that this holds, right? But I want to see a bit more iPhone, for example, in this paper, the word class differences much more striking. So we plotted importance for tokens based on their word class. And if you compare the two plots for the human importance and for the model importance, it's really hard to see any difference. Right? You have to really look closely because you can easily see that content words are much more important than function words. And then interjections are most important because they interrupt the reading flow. And even the ordering of the word classes is the same for both. And this holds also for both eye-tracking data sets. So it's not like a specific data set bias, but um, I think that that was a quite robust finding. And I, I found this very interesting. Yeah, hearing how how much these plots showed the result and also your anecdote, I thought was very compelling about saliency measures versus attention and the differences there. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. What is your conclusion from these experiments about the differences between saliency measures and attention? And what what are the implications for how these metrics can be used or what they encode about different NLP models? Yeah, from, we're not yet there, right? It's very recent results. So I'm not talking here about 10 years of research experience, but really like the last one, two years that we're looking into this. So as I said earlier, best practices I cannot give them to you yet. I can only give you peaks or things that I find fascinating and that I would like to work on. And when we are now working with the eye tracking data, my go-to for the moment is definitely the saliency-based measures, but there are more variants of them, right? So it's we used a very simple form of saliency 
and they're more interesting ones where you like also yeah not only look at individual words but also longer spans um and there's also something called influence functions where you really see how how also tokens influence each other and not only the prediction in the end and that's something i definitely want to dig deeper into but i wouldn't discard attention yet right that it just works too well for me i have a quite good intuition how attention worked in the encoder decoder networks right that like to when you do a sequence to sequence processing task that depending on which element you generate in the target you attend to different parts of the input that i would also probably call attention that somehow makes conceptually sense for me i have not yet wrapped my head around the concept of self attention in transformers like how to find conceptual metaphors for them like when i try to explain it i notice that it still seems a bit like an engineering hack and i i struggle to find good cognitive parallels of mapping this still it seems to work well right so i worked together with the student Eche Takmats together with uh, Sandro Pecella and Raquel Fernandez and she used an eye tracking data set where humans produced captions for an image and when we fed this eye tracking information of the human subject into a caption generation model the captions the model generated changed and quantitatively the difference was very small so we wouldn't conclude that it's really better captions but then when we did this qualitative analysis we thought that they were more naturally sounding so you could find for example that a caption that earlier was a bus and a bus in a street now became two buses parking in a street right so from a blur perspective that might be even be the same depends on which measure you apply and which reference but from a human perspective it's like much nicer to read two buses than a bus and a bus if there's no additional qualifier for distinguishing between these buses and in this example we fed the eye tracking signal into the attention right so i wouldn't say that like forget about attention i mean i think it's a very important mechanism that contributed to a lot of improvements in our models I'm not sure if the name attention is the best name right it might be misleading and but I don't cannot propose a better one yet yeah i think you raise a really good point about how the word attention is also just very overloaded like when you have layers and layers of attention stacked on top of each other in these transformer networks that seems very different in nature than the encoder decoder kind of attention you mentioned and it would be interesting i think to see if in maybe a translation model in this kind of encoder decoder setup whether attention did resemble more human like eye tracking data maybe an experiment in the future yeah um, yeah join me on on it yeah <laughs> that would be cool but yeah i think we've covered a lot of what i was hoping to talk about today is there anything that you wanted to discuss that we didn't touch on either of you Yeah I forgot to mention um two students like brilliant students that I worked with and those are Rochelle Chuni and Samira Abna both working at the ILC at the UFA Amsterdam and you should really watch it there uh, watch their work because they are brilliant and you will hear from them I'm sure 
unfortunately, I'm not at the same university as them anymore, but I am definitely watching their, their publications <laughs> and you should too. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. It was a really interesting discussion and I, it generated new ideas, I have to say. Awesome. <laughs>